Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. Take your Bible and open to Ezekiel chapter 36. Continue on through the Old Testament, and we really just have, after today, three Sundays left, and then we're going to be into Advent, if I did my math right. So a couple of more Sundays to go, and I encourage you to finish uh, your year reading strong. Don't, don't taper off in December because we're doing Advent, but uh, make sure you stay with it and uh, finish your reading. Uh, but uh, sermons will, of course, focus on Advent. We will have an Advent journal, a devotion journal for you again like we did last year. That'll be coming out soon. Um, but uh, make sure that uh, we're getting ready for Advent, but we want to finish this race through the Old Testament strong. And so today we find ourselves in uh, Ezekiel chapter 36. We're going to be looking at verse 22. Some of you in your pocket or your purse I always have to go to my wife for one of these little things because she's got that big purse, right? It's like, don't mess with her because it's heavy. And if I hurt my back, it's probably because I helped picking that thing up. But always in mama's purse, there are what? Breath mints. Somebody right now is like, see, honey, I told you so. He heard you. Breath mints can do the job of a, a glorious job, covering up a little problem or a big problem, depending on who you are but they don't necessarily address the problem. So there's some, I'm not that kind of doctor, but there are some products out there that apparently you can swallow and they get down into your digestive system. Sorry to be gross, but it, it changes the way your body processes food and helps uh, overcome some of those uh, gases that might come out through the mouth and upset your breath. Uh, so it's working on the inside is the point, right? When we look at what Israel has been going through in exile, we have this moment now where God is ready to begin the work of bringing them out of exile, bringing them back to the land of Israel. But what he knows is true for them is still true for us today, that the real change occurs on the inside. In order for Israel to come back out of exile, or for Judah and Israel to come out of exile, to be gathered from the nations, to be brought back to Jerusalem, back to the promised land, their heart had to be fixed. We can attempt to overcome issues of the heart, maybe by attending church. We hope that might help. Maybe by reading our Bible more. Maybe by reading some other self-help book, going to our doctor, uh, offering praise and worship, offering a hallelujah. But The stuff that man offers just doesn't last. It is a transformed heart that will produce transformed living. For Israel, having been in exile now for some time, as we read Ezekiel 36, God is working out his plan. He's working out his purpose to bring them home. And that new heart that he's going to put in them is brought about by what's called regeneration. Regeneration is an act of God, a secret act of God, or a work of God, where he imparts to the believer a new spiritual life. 
It's not the work of the pastor. It's not the work of the church. It is a work of God. Now, why is regeneration necessary? It's necessary because, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, we were born spiritually dead. We're all dead in our sin and in our trespasses. And we have to be made alive in Christ. And the only way that happens is what John's gospel says, which is where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, saying that you must be born again. It is that born again moment where regeneration takes place where God takes the old heart out and puts the new heart in. Here's where that comes from. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 22. I'm going to read down to verse 32. If you would stand this morning one more time as we read the word of God. This is the word of God. Therefore says, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from, your, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. And I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded of your ways, O house of Israel." Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word this morning. I thank you that we can find that promise of transformation, that promise of a change of heart, a change that takes place on the inside. Lord, a change that only you can work. Thank you for fulfilling this promise in the sending of your son Jesus and in the sending of the Holy Spirit. Father, thank you for loving us even though we were sinners. Thank you for that Christ died for us even though we were still sinners. Thank you that in Christ we have the gift of eternal life. And that is not a work of man so that no one may boast before you. But it is truly your work from your gracious and merciful hand. Father, you are to be praised for that. What we do not know this morning, teach us. What we are not yet, make us for your glory and our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, church. You may be seated. What we find here in Ezekiel chapter 36 is though God sent his people away into exile, he refused to leave his people the way they were. He was after life change. He provided all that was necessary to conform those that he loved to the image of Christ. And today he is still in the business of changing hearts and changing lives for his glory and our good. 
Let's look at the first couple of verses of what we read this morning and see that God transformed his people for the sake of his name. God has transformed his people for the sake of his name. Go back to verse 21. I didn't read that while ago, but just look at it for a moment. God says, I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Why is he concerned about his name? Well, if you go back into verse 16 and read down to verse 21, you'll find, you'll find the reason. You'll find how deep they were in their sin and how unclean they were. And verse 17 particularly points that out to us. And so God says, I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols for which they had defiled how they had defiled the land, scattered them among the nations. It's just a review of all that Israel had done. And verse 21, he says, but I had concern for my holy name. Of all the affliction and suffering that Israel had endured during that exile and going into exile, the attack of Babylon upon Jerusalem, you might think that as you worked your way into this and the exile and the people coming out, that the, the promise of redemption and rescue, God was going to take action for them because of the suffering of his people, that that would, that would touch the heart of God, that he would go after them and rescue them once again because of their condition. But actually in this moment, what caused me to have my rock back in the chair moment, sometimes as I'm reading scripture or I'm studying and I, I come across something that just kind of makes me stop and think, I, sit, I tend to lay back in my chair and recline just a bit in my office chair and, and sit there and, and dwell on what I just read. This is that rock back moment for me this week in verse 21, and it's repeated again in verse 32 where it says that God took action for the sake of his name, for his reputation, for his holiness. His holiness is on the line. You'll find in Scripture time and time again, especially though in the Psalms where songs and prayers are being offered, you'll find that phrase, for your name's sake, as we're offering a praise to the Lord or we're praying, we'll, they would say something to that effect. Lord, for, for your name's sake. Right? But here is God taking action on behalf of his name. The priority in Ezekiel 36 for God is his interest, his will over that of his people. Romans chapter 11, verse 36 Paul wrote at the, end of, uh, at the end of chapter 11, he kind of breaks into doxology, which he often does in his letters uh, as, after he's given some great big thought. He just gets so overwhelmed and he's got to praise God. And there he says, for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. And that's really kind of the reset moment that we need at times in our own life of following Jesus to remember that this is not about us. This is about him. It's about his glory and yes, he's in it for our good, but it's more about his glory. You see, where Israel was is that they were a stench in their sin. They were a stench to God. They had profaned his name. They had misused his name, his holy name, his name that is separate and special and sacred amongst all others, a name that is higher than above any other name. And because they had made it seem like the God of Israel did not care about his people, his reputation is on the line. Again, verses 16 through 21 states pretty clearly how disgusting and unclean their sin was, how they were defiled, and how they defiled God's name. But in their disobedience and in their sin, 
God had sent them on exile. Now he's going to restore them, but he's making it abundantly clear it was not because they deserved restoring, but again, for the sake of his name, for the sake of his reputation. Well, think about what a name means. A name is is not just a title or a a label for caller ID or a way to identify someone, but rather it stood for their essence. It stood for their character, for their reputation. It it sometimes would even define who they were. Um, And we'll find that name changes often bring about some kind of significant moment in a man or woman's life, such as Abram and Sarai becoming Abraham and Sarah. God would often change a name in that moment to signify a change in their life direction. But God's name is sacred. God's name has always been the I am. He's what he tells Moses in Exodus 3 at the burning bush. His name is Yahweh, the I am who I am. And you can't really define him by that. You you can't really... um, grasp all that he is or all that he will be or all that he has been. We see glimpses and and God's purpose in choosing Israel was for Israel to make his name known to the nations, to make the God of creation, the God of the universe known to all the peoples of the earth. But man, they just couldn't get over their sin. They just kept living in it and rolling in it and and, and wallowing in it like like an old pig in the mud. And, and, And that's where they just dwelt. That's where they were. Yet In their failure to this, God is still about getting his name out there. And you will read time and time again in Ezekiel that his purpose is that people will know that he is God. They will know that I am the Lord. In verse 23, God says, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations. You have profaned among them. The nations will know that I am the Lord. Guess what our mission is today? It's not any different. It's that the world would know him through Jesus Christ, that the world would know him, that all the people groups of the entire uh, uh, and all of creation would know that he is the Lord. And yet here is God acting on his behalf this time, for his name's sake. What brings me pause is that we get into a place in our walk with Jesus where we think this whole thing is about us and our reputation. But for God in this moment, it's his concern for his reputation, his glory, his renown. And you know, that should be our concern. Isaiah 26, 8 says, your name, your renown, your remembrance is the desire, are the desire of our soul. Your name, your renown, that you would be known amongst the nations, that is to be the desire of our soul too. God's glory isn't going to be restored here in Ezekiel because of anything that Israel is going to accomplish through that process. Rather, it is going to happen because of God's grace and the necessity for God to act For his name to be glorified once again. It helps me to remember that the salvation that I've known since I was eight years old was not deserved as by by God. It was not deserved on my part. I, I had nothing to do with it. But rather it was God's grace, his unmerited favor. His grace has preceded any kind of repentance on my part as he extended that to us. They will all know the God of Israel is not just a God who was or is or will ever be defeated. They will know that he is a victorious God, that he is a living God, that he is the all-powerful God, all-knowing God, always present God and loving God. They will know that he is the I am. 
And yet as we consider that life revolves around us, we have a tendency also to consider that God revolves around us. Like all we have to do is pick up our Bible in the morning and rub it three times and hope that the God slash genie pops out and grants us our three wishes to do our bidding, to give us what we want. We want strong marriage, we want a fulfilling job, a career, we want a peaceful retirement, we want a wonderful house slash home, we want to catch that big fish, shoot the big deer, and, and, and keep us safe from all the awful diseases out there, and, and hopefully the, the right person gets selected to office. You know, like all the things we could run down the list and we take in thinking that God revolves around us. Yet here we're reminded strongly that God acts for his glory. And I often say for his glory and our good, but friend, that good is really a distant second to his glory. He didn't set out to rescue Israel because they were great, but because he is great. That's exactly why Jesus went to the cross, because he's the great savior. And while he does love his creation and he loves his people, God ultimately has the holiness of his name to protect to be concerned about. Since the fall in the garden, humanity has done nothing but drug, drag his name through the mud. Yet that phrase, they will know that I am the Lord, is used 26 times in this book. It's an important theme for Ezekiel. He's promised and soon they will know. In fact, we will all know that he in fact is the Lord when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that. What always brings hope to me as I read through the Old Testament, and even in the New Testament too, is that when God's people are at their lowest, they're at their weakest moment, the desperate condition, God will step in. His grace is always in the forefront, and yet here we see his name is at the forefront. Friends, we are needy, we are hopeless, we are helpless in and of ourselves. This is the moment that his moment to set himself apart from all the other gods, all the other imposters, all the other so-called deliverers that are out there that will say, just buy this, just do this, just believe this, and you'll be fine. You'll make it. You'll be accepted. You won't get canceled off of Twitter. You won't be shut down on Facebook if you'll just do these things. But this is the moment that our God rises to the occasion, and he says, my name is holier than any other. This is the moment. It's his way. This is why he sent Jesus. This is what Jesus said. The son of man has come to seek and to save the lost. And only a God that is looking to seek and save the lost has the power to do it. And he is the one that will make a way and has made the way. So how did he accomplish this? How would he accomplish this radical transformation that we've read about? Well, let's look at this. Uh, six, at least six that I'll point out to you this morning. In verse 24, God took the initiative he took the first step to restore and gather his people to himself. Again, verse 24, he says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. He set out to bring them home. It says, he will gather and bring them back. Not all that different than what God did with Israel the first time when they were in exile to Egypt. He brought them out and brought them into the promised land. Why is this God able to do it and not others? Because this is the God, the God of Israel, who sent them to the nations in exile. And now he's going to bring them back from the nations. He comes to those who are not able to assemble for themselves, not able to, to gather or muster troops to fight back. And he says, I'm coming to you. 
It's exactly what Jesus has done. As the Father he sent me, Jesus said to his disciples, so I am sending you. That's the mission of God. He knows exactly where each of his people are, and he is going to gather each one and bring them back. And through that movement of his people, the nations will know that he is God. The second thing he does, he doesn't just bring them back. He begins to cleanse them from their sin. God cleansed his people from their sin. Look at verse 25. I will sprinkle you clean, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. He doesn't just bring them back to live in Jerusalem in sin, but rather he set out to cleanse his people from their sin. This is why they're in exile in the first place, particularly the sin of idolatry, which is the worshiping of other gods, false gods, putting gods above their God, the God of Israel, our God. But sprinkling here, please don't make the mistake of thinking it means a sprinkling baptism but rather it recalls the Old Testament practice of a ceremonial washing of the sins as they were to go into the temple for worship. A cleansing of sins, though, here as they they were carried to the nations in exile, God is working on cleansing that. Notice he didn't say, clean yourself up first and then I'll come, but rather he said, I will cleanse you. These are all the things that God is doing. I will bring you home. I will gather you. I will sprinkle you clean. I will wash you. There's a moment where Jesus is washing the disciples' feet in the gospel of John chapter 13, and he comes to Peter. This is just before his arrest and trial and crucifixion, and he's washing their feet. He's serving them. He's setting that example for them, and a beautiful example it is, and he comes to Peter, and he grabs the towel, and he begins to, to move in on Peter's feet, and And it's almost, you can sense it in your mind's eye. Peter pulls his feet back and he says, you'll never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. You have no part with me. Listen, this is something that has to happen. This is God's work of cleansing his people from their sins. You can't be pig pen and follow Jesus, okay? You remember Pigpen from Charlie Brown, the little dirty one that always walked around with the dust flying around him and bugs and everything else? You can't be that guy following Jesus, okay? He's going to wash you clean. He's going to wash you clean. That has to happen. God is the one who does that work. And the imagery here of the sprinkling with clean water, the impurities of sin being washed away to reestablish worship for the Jews who had fallen into a state of uncleanliness. That's an external act. There's more to it than just the external act. There's got to be room for internal repentance and That today, my friends, is accomplished by the blood of Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews in chapter 9 of that book says, If the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, that's the external things, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience, our hearts, from dead works to serve the living God? How much more will the blood of Christ do it if the externals weren't knocking it off? The internal from the blood of Christ is going to cleanse you clean. As far as the east is from the west, 
The third thing God did is regenerated their hearts. This is perhaps the most important, one of the most important verses in all of Ezekiel, maybe even in all of the Old Testament. God regenerated their hearts. We'll call this the great exchange. Look at verse 26. So he's gathering them. He's sprinkling clean water on them to clean them up from all their uncleanliness. In verse 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Don't worry. We're not going to cut you open and take out your heart this morning. What a powerful work of God this is. Cleansing is good. Change is better. A new heart, a new spirit. The exchange is the heart of stone for the heart of flesh. Think about those two images, stone versus flesh. The stone is cold, insensitive. It's lifeless. You can't shape it without a lot of hard, hard, hard work. It's kind of like the idols that they worshipped. They couldn't speak back. They had no power. They were insensitive, cold, lifeless. And yet God's going to take that heart, which we all have in our sin, he's going to take that heart out and exchange it and put in a heart of flesh. That heart of flesh is moldable. It's shapeable. That heart is teachable. It's the exact opposite of the heart of stone. There's life in that heart of flesh that God has breathed into it. That is the change that is needed. Whatever our politicians or doctors or psychiatrists, psychologists, humanists of our day, they all kind of reject this heart work, this internal stuff, because they don't understand it. They don't have what we have in Christ. They, don't, they reject Christ. And so there's nothing that we can do in, in, in our own power that men or women can do to repair that human condition. Beloved, everything you see in the news, every, every trial, every struggle that our nation and the world right now is walking through is a condition of the human heart. And I'm not talking cardiac conditions. I'm talking about our soul, our spirit. It's broken. And the only way that it can be fixed is if God replaces it. That is the work of regeneration. And that work, again, totally belongs to God. It's the moment that you are born again. Jesus answered Nicodemus, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That is the work of God. John also says in his gospel in the opening chapter, all, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That means you're not going to find the fix for what ails you in anything else but the will of God, which was for Christ to die on the cross for your sin and that you would trust in Jesus as the name above every other name and there find that change of heart. God has made it happen and he's still in the business of changing hearts. And the copay, deductible, out-of-pocket max, listen, all that's paid for at the cross. Praise God. It's all paid for at the cross. Number four, God sent then the Holy Spirit to indwell his believers. Or he said he would, and he has done it in the book of Acts. He says in verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So when God put in the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, into, into the people of God, then they will be able to follow his decrees, follow his will, keep his word. They'll be transformed. 
never again to profane the name of God. You know, we still struggle though, don't we? And I, that's why I really love Romans chapter seven where Paul talks about his personal struggles following the will of God and failure to keep the law in his own strength and in his own way. And then you turn right around and you keep going and you read in chapter eight how then he focused the church to remember the importance of relying on the indwelling Holy Spirit to empower believers. In other words, to live in the power of the Holy Spirit because it is in the Spirit of God and living in that empowerment of the Holy Spirit that we are able to overcome and follow the will of God and obey and that promise of a new spirit, we find that again in Joel chapter 2, verse 28. And while Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost, as captured in Acts chapter 2, he quotes that very verse from Joel, that the spirit has come. These people, he said, these guys aren't drunk. This is the spirit of God, just as your prophets prophesied as, as he talks about Joel. The fifth thing is the spirit comes is that God has redefined the relationship. In verse 28, he says, you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Maybe rather than saying redefine the relationship, that may be a poor phrase, but what he did was reconcile the relationship. You shall be my people and I will be your God. It has everything to do with heaven. For us, we get more excited about who we're going to see when we get there. Or walking on the streets of gold and maybe finding which mansion is ours, yeah? which hillside and which mansion is ours. But the reality is, the greatest part of heaven that is to come is that we will be with God, we will be in His presence that the I am will gather and change and transform his people, that we would dwell with him forever is a very special relationship. In fact, it's the most important relationship you'll ever have in your life. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are, John says. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Romans 8, 15, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoptions as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. In Christ, we are his people, and he is our God. He has defined and reconciled that relationship. The sixth thing I'll point out to you is verse 31. It's an interesting command. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. God commanded his people to remember their sins. Ooh, that, that could be unpleasant, yeah? Remember your sin also brings about the remembrance of grace and mercy. We do well, though, to remember our sin, lest history repeats itself. It's how we learn from our mistakes, from our sin. Remember your ways. Remember that your deeds were not good. Loathe your sin. Boy, that's a strong word. Loathe your sin, your detestable practices. Be ashamed and humiliated because of your ways. Hopefully, remembering again will pre prevent a repeat. If that describes where you are, not remembering but living in that sin, I'd be encouraged if you would 
open your life and trust Christ to be transformed by his gospel. He can pull you out of it. He'll help you overcome it. We need to remember it. The reason, the other reason why we want to be out of that sin and yet still to remember the sin is that it causes us not to boast. When you remember your sin and you remember how far you have fallen, you remember that you are a great sinner, it causes you to remember the great Savior who overcame that sin. You remember what Paul said, by grace, it's grace through faith so that no one can boast. I didn't get to heaven on my own. I didn't get to know God on my own. It wasn't my initiative. It was his initiative. He came for the sinner. Bragging about our own rescue, it's not the way. But if we remember our sin and how far we have fallen in that sin, the only way out is by the grace of God and not our own goodness and not our own works. Listen, God restored also the land, the cities, all of those things he promised. And he calls them to pray when they get back. But here's the conclusion of all of this this morning. Let me just sum it up. What you see in Ezekiel is not some kind of ethical direction to follow. A five, six, 10, 12-step program to a better life. That's all external stuff. God is after your heart, and he wants to change your heart. You can't have your own heart created in your own way. It's still a heart of stone if it's your way. You need a heart that is given to you by God. The heart that he promised in verse 26 where he said, I will give you a new heart. Our only hope of salvation is for God by the power of his Holy Spirit to perform that miracle of removing that stony heart of rebellion and giving us that heart of flesh that's moldable, shapeable, teachable, that reflects its creator and its giver. A heart that is Growing in Christ-likeness. A heart that is growing in grace and knowledge of Jesus. A heart that will love him and a heart that will desire to know him. A heart that is in relationship with him. We have to remember that we are dead in our sin and our transgressions. We have to be brought from death into life. And the only way that happens is through being born again as Jesus taught us. And that that new life that the gospel brings us, again, it's not a set of clever strategies or rehab, uh, spiritual rehabilitation or any kind of fresh resolve. At the new year, make all of our resolutions that we keep until we have that next piece of pie on New Year's Day. It's not a new way from our old resources. It is a new source of divine power from the outside that changes us at the very core of who we are. From the inside out, a transformation so profound that even our desires are changed. Regeneration, new birth. Ezekiel 36 is one of the clearest passages on that work that God does in the sinner's life. And he wants to do that work in your life today. To you, 
To all of us, the call of salvation is clear that he calls you to trust him, to trust in Christ, to have faith in Christ, because in Christ, your sins are paid for at the cross. They are forgiven at the cross. There you receive the promise of the new covenant sealed in his blood, that your sins are washed clean by that cup. That's what that cup symbolizes. And that, that bread that we took this morning, that that was his body, a, a symbolic picture of his body that took the beating and the, the wrath of God on your behalf. And that through all of that, you gain a right standing with God. That's the hard work that he wants to do. Now, Christian, if you're still struggling in your sin, I want you to understand something. Verse 29 and verse 33. I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. Verse 33. On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities. All. From the Hebrew into the English, we translate that as all. He doesn't miss anything. He doesn't miss anything. All of it is cleansed. And there we see the glory of God shine through. He is going to deliver you and will deliver you from all your sin. You know what that tells me, brothers and sisters? He's all in. He is all in. Through the cross of Christ, God offers salvation to you from the penalty of sin, which is death. All the penalty is broken. Its power is gone. And I just ask that you would trust in him this morning.